Joe Wadsworth is the founder of Online Recording Studio. His business allows artists to have their songs produced remotely. The name says it all. This episode, Joe speaks on turning down a music scholarship at a well-respected music school and how he started his business from his university dorm room. He now has a team of more than 20 people that are generating over six figures in revenue. Joe shares so many tips and tricks this episode, such as the importance of the name of your company, how to build and maintain your creative career, as well as some marketing tactics he uses to name a few. I studied music production and my goal was really to become a music producer sort of standalone on on its own and so I went to Leeds College of Music to study music production and within a few weeks of getting there I kind of thought I don't know if this is really for me and it was really down to the fact that a I felt like the course was a bit useless and a bit rubbish and I thought because they were trying to have a a one-size-fits-all course for people who were on rock pop electronic yeah you know you've got a dubstep producer and a rock producer in the same class and it just it doesn't it means that everyone's not quite getting something that they need so it was that Mm. combined with the fact that I actually saw the level of commitment that other people in my year there was you know not a huge amount but a few people in in the year who were so committed to making great music that they Mm. would spend hours and hours and hours inside on their computers not going out or having any sort of social life at all to focus on mastering one plugin on Ableton or one, you know, one sound or one sample bank in an almost obsessive way. Yeah. And I just kind of thought, I don't care enough that much about... That was me. I was doing the exact same thing. I was there like, yeah, I'm good at music. I love music, but... I'm not this into it, you know? I'm like, I don't understand where, the, oh, the passion, I'm staying up late at night to, I was like, I want to stay up late at night and go party. Like, why would you want to stay late up night in the studio? That's like the worst thing you could do. That's that's the thing, I, you know, I couldn't agree more. It, it just, if you're, if you're not one of those people who's that obsessive about that thing with music, then I don't think you'll, you really have what it takes to, to be a producer. And that's why very quickly I, I was like, I, I, this isn't for me. I maybe am more interested in in the sort of organisational side of this or the business side of this. Mm. Um, and I always, I always think it's better to be the one that your your value within the marketplace isn't based on what's trendy within the marketplace. So yeah. whether you're an artist or whether you're a producer, unless you're incredibly versatile, chances are you specialise in one area. That's more, I'd say that's even more true for artists than it is for producers. And if, if Mm. what is trendy and what at that time changes, suddenly you're out of a job. So if you're in a music position that isn't, your value isn't defined by what is the the trend in music at that time. And actually, regardless of what happens, you still know that your job is going to be useful and valuable. I think that's, that's a more pragmatic way to look at getting into the music industry than just, hey, I want to be famous. I want to do the main stage at Glastonbury. Yeah, a lot of people at my university were like that. Oh, I want to be the next big pop star. I want to be the next Michael Jackson, all this kind of stuff. It's like, yeah, well, if you're here doing a degree, you're probably not going to get that far (laughs) because those people were already famous, famous by now and, and doing what they're doing. And I had a lot of really kind of like, not frank, but I guess rude conversations with people at uni where I was like, if we're here doing this degree, you have to admit that you either want to become a teacher, you don't know what you want to do, or you want to work in a business type environment. You're not planning to be the next big pop star by being here now. And the people are like, why would you say that? Why would you say that? It's like, it's the reality that I've come to realize 
once I realized how dedicated you guys are to this one thing, I'd be like, why are you not just out there doing that? They're like, because I want a degree. It's like, musicians don't need degrees. They need sales and tours and all that. Quite right. And actually, it's, you know, it's funny. I, whenever I do an interview, I always end up talking about how much I thought my university was a bit of a scam and a bit useless. But I will be true to form. I, oh, I, it's a common yeah. thing, I guess. We say the same thing about my uni. I won't name drop them, but people used to say it was a scam. Yeah, well, too. the reason I think it was a scam is, number one, it was just rubbish. Like, uh, you know, you could tell that most of the people who worked there did not like working there or you know things hadn't quite panned out and there were some really there were some really really good teachers we had a, a great guy in our first year who taught us how to use logic who was amazing but then everyone else they kind of just you know they just were like hey. turned up read the powerpoint and that's left. it and then i found out that a really high portion of the people who went to my university and oh sorry sorry oh, yeah a really teach. high a really high portion of the people who teach there went there which means that yeah, they yeah. are paying back their student loans to that place by working at that place and getting the next sort of generation of potential teachers trained up to then come and work there. And at, at a, you know, from, from a distance, that's not that different to a pyramid scheme. No, <laughs> most know? definitely. And that's one thing that I realized. I was like, wait, you came here, what, seven years ago? I was like, what happened in those seven years? Oh, I did this, I did that, went on tour, I did this, back up. But now yeah. I'm here and I love it. I was like, no, you don't. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think if you end up doing a teaching a, an arts degree either you've made a real choice that that's what you want to do you love the teaching part of it or mm. something hasn't quite worked out because and, yeah. and you're, you're quite right to say about that actually if you if you're going and doing the degree chances are that you're not going to be one of those massive uber celebrities that is huge because chances are if you are one of those people and you know an ariana grande or a you know a taylor swift you've been in artist development since you were five years old at you know at the disney exactly. school or at one of you know at, at the brit school or something like that from you know you, you've been trained up yeah. those those people don't just come out of nowhere there's a whole you know, there's rooms and rooms of them they all end up on sort of bit parts on the disney channel and on nickelodeon and stuff and then they end up becoming big stars you don't go from university, show your degree to a label and say, oh, great. Yeah, you've got a degree in pop. We'll sign you. We, we've never signed someone. We've, we've never hired a producer based on their degree. It's always been based on their portfolio. Yeah. And I feel like portfolio is king. And I feel like nowadays as well, you can be 15 and have an amazing portfolio. You could be 30 and have it. It doesn't matter how old you are. And the qualifications aren't really that important. But I feel like people are so focused on this piece of paper because, you know, the rule is most of the time you get a degree you're gonna have a good career. And I feel like with creative stuff, it's it's way less about that. It's about spending hours and hours and hours just getting the best at what you yeah. like to do. Not the best at what the market wants, but the best at what you like, like to do. A hundred percent. You know, it, it, it makes, we, ha we have this producer um, who's just, you know, on, on the thing of it not really mattering how old you are or, or what degree you've got or anything like that. We have a brilliant producer on our team uh, who is a great producer in his own right, but for his own music, his name's Joe Garrett. So yeah, go, if you're listening, go check out Joe Garrett on Spotify. He is early twenties. I think when he came to us, he was maybe 20. Um, when he first joined our team, mm. one of the best producers I've ever had the pleasure of working with in my, my entire career. He is so focused and detailed in his production style. He came to us literally straight out of a university lecture because <laughs> we had another producer who was working at the university who was his lecturer. Um, he, I said, yeah. hey, we need someone to do this electronic track. This guy put Joe Garrett in the back of a taxi, sent him over to us, 
you know, super green, really fresh face, young kid, came in, gave us this. Uh, I said, hey, here's the brief for the project. We need someone to do this. We need something like ASAP. And he was like, it's cool. I'll get back to you tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Sent me back this draft the next day. And it was, uh, in all honesty, it was the catalyst for us to go, hey, this is genuinely a real opportunity here business-wise for, for this service. Hearing what he did, where he took it from this rough phone recording demo to this massive electronic sort of summer tune overnight. And we were like, right, well, you're, you're, you know, he's, he's been with us for, I think, nearly four years now. Um, you know, and in that time, he's grown his, his music audience, you know, millions and millions of streams on his own stuff. Um, but he is exactly the prime example. He actually left. He finished his degree. He didn't finish his degree. He left and, uh, you know, then focused on music full time, I think, in the middle of his second year. Well, that's that's the success formula, isn't it? You've got to drop out of college. You've got to do the Zuckerberg thing exactly. and drop out of college. He, he really, you know, and that was the absolutely the right decision for him because that university was really stifling for him just to be able to do what he was doing. And now he's seriously making waves. But it, it just goes to show that with that, that, persistence and that time and attention to detail the degree is really just a place for you to tread water and work out what you're doing until you've worked it out and then you should get out of there save your money and find a way to start working in the industry that you're trying to work in and that you know that's true for for theater it's true for for art it's true for uh, for music anything creative the degree is is yeah. literally just a piece of paper. It's not like law or medicine where you need to learn yeah. that stuff. You need exactly. it to work. Exactly. And one thing I realized as well with my degree is, is you spend a lot of time learning the industry standard this, industry standard that. And then you come out and you realize no one's using any of these hard and fast rules. You know, okay, yeah, certain things like, you know, don't don't put fount- phantom power into a dynamic mic and all that type of shit. Cool. Yeah. All right. Thank you for teaching me that, sir. Oh, gain staging. Thank you. Other than that, there's no real hard and fast rules. You're not going to kill anybody by making bad music or trying something uh, I, different, you know? Quite right. And actually, often it's by making mistakes and getting things wrong and just playing around on the software and not knowing how to use it that you can make some really interesting discoveries on how to make new sounds. And often in, on the courses that I had at uni, it was like, here are the 10 golden rules to mixing. And by the time I'd finished university, I'd been taught by other pe- other students uh, that the majority of that list was actually not, hadn't been relevant for 20 years uh, because all these new things come in. Yeah, it's arbitrary. No. It doesn't make and, sense. And particularly if it's the industry standard, then you do have to question, okay, so why are you who's teaching it to me not working at an industry standard? Yeah. Only one of my lecturers actually owned a music studio outside of uni and then he even i think he i don't know what happened but he let he ended up leaving and he still ran his studio i used to go there and record and whatever and it was a good decent studio but now i was like why are you not doing that full time and he was a bit like oh i'm trying to save money da, 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 da. so it made a little bit of sense to me but more often than not i feel like some lecturers are just there because like you said the dreamers <laughs> died they need an income and uh, and that's the best place and all credit to them you know I guess it's a it's a way to still be in touch with the industry, but not, you know, not have to worry about where's my next meal coming from, or I've got to go to this session, I've got to be out till four in the morning type thing. So, what? So you started online recording studio in university, right? So up in Leeds, you started. Was this was this in your first year, second year, third year? Like, how far in were you? It was in my first year, and I was in halls, and I. So I got there, and I and I felt very quickly that I'd made the wrong call in going there. 
because a bit of context for, for my going there was that when I was applying for all these different universities, I'd applied there and I'd applied to the Guildhall in London. And the Guildhall is a really, really great school and they only take four people on the course. And and so my, <laughs> my mother uh, at that time uh, was saying to me, uh, oh, she's still my mother. I just mean at that time she was, she was saying, saying that. She's yeah. emancipated. You see. Yeah. <laughs> Very much still my mother. Yeah. But she, you know, I think, and I, in hindsight, I think this was to motivate me. It, it sort of said, uh, you, you'll never get into the Guildhall. You know, you need to do more practice. They're looking for people who, who work much harder. And yeah. so I was like, well, I'm going to try really hard to get in there. And I managed to get, I, I managed to get in and get one of those places. And then in a, a sort of... Um, a thing of teenage rebellion just went, well, I'm not going to go. And yeah. then went up to Leeds College of Music and very quickly was like, this was a mistake. I should have gone to Guildhall. It's way better. You know, going from a year where there would have been four people to a year yeah. where there were like 500 people. Exactly. Very reckless decision. Don't, don't make the same mistake that I did if anyone has been offered a place at a great school like that. But I got there and then was very quickly saying, this is not for me and I'm, I'm not into this. And so... That coincided with getting my student loan in. And that was the first time, I think, that I'd ever really been given that amount of money in, in one go yeah, uh, without consequence. It's very wild when you think about it. You kind of just, you get to uni and they give you, you know, three, four grand in your account and expect you to just be like, yeah, manage that. <laughs> Most people don't, <laughs> as, as you and I both know. Yep, and I very, very much was one of the people who didn't handle that. Um, yeah. And so very quickly spent almost all of that money and was like, As Oh, I've got no money. Do you know what it was? We discovered Costco. Oh I'd yeah. Never been to Best Costco thing. before. It's amazing. Oh, everything you want in bulk for fairly cheap. When you think about it, you can get a box of, you know, whatever chocolate you want for like a tenner, but it's like 50 in there. And you're like, how, what? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So that, well, that, that was kind of the first, the first little business thing that I was trying to do at uni was I would go, I went to Costco stocked up on loads of chocolates and sweets and crisps and, and you know all the snacks all and, and a lot of those american snacks as well that you couldn't get in the normal shops um and so what we did was bought loads of stuff in bulk and then my, i don't i hope this is okay sort of for, for the audience it's not it's not kids. everything's okay everything's okay all right so anything goes you can swear we've had a sexually explicit person on it's all good just just go go Terrific. ahead okay well my room very quickly became this sort of like communal room where everyone would come in and have a little smoke and as students do they would have a little smoke and then they would get very hungry yeah and so i thought hey everyone's already coming here and they're pretty hungry what if I just had loads of snacks ready to go and then I could sell on these snacks you know because I was and so I started doing this and started having like tabs and stuff and everyone had a little page in this book where we were sort of recording everything at the end of the term we got it but it was sort of this like honeypot thing where we'd come in and get everyone really baked they'd get really hungry and they'd be like well here's the food I know you don't want to go all the way across the road to the shop so you can buy this stuff at a a premium you're already here the food is here take take this that was it so that was the first sort of like i have no money i need to try and make some money tactic and that was sort of okay and then i was like well i should probably do i don't really want to run a tuck shop professionally so maybe i should look at something more in line with what i want to do and and actually there was a conversation i had with there was an artist um uh called grace who who was in my first year of uni and she 
talking to me about Instagram one day and I'd never really used yeah. Instagram before I went to university at all. And I went, she, she was talking about how, you know, sharing stuff on there and all that. Sort. So I thought, right, I'll download it. I'll go on it. And I went on it and within about 15 minutes of searching singer songwriter or new music or things like that, found that there was literally millions of people who were posting videos of themselves singing all who wanted to be singers. And this was their way of expressing that. And so I thought, well, I've got all the stuff here to produce. I can play a couple of instruments myself, not to an incredible standard, but but certainly you know decent enough to record stuff. Um, so I started reaching out to people and saying like, hey, you know, I really liked your song. I'm a student. I'm trying to build my portfolio up. I'd be very happy to record that song as like a full version. I'll record it in my room and you record your vocals at home and it'll be like hundred pounds for the whole song. Yeah. You know, it's just sort of testing the waters and gradually that started to grow and I started to have more and more customers do it, wanting to do this. And mm. in hindsight, it's probably because the price was quite so low. But when you're young, a hundred pound feels like you're on top of the world. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Cause I, I was, I was just thinking like I get 20 people and I've made back that first student loan payment. Yeah. And that's it. And you know, we did do that. And when it came to instruments that I couldn't play myself, it was so amazing being in this room, uh, this building full of other musicians. Cause I could just drop something on the sort of message board on Facebook for, for our building and say, Hey, I need a trumpet player. We've got beer and pizza come down you know, and re record some stuff, we'll have some fun. And there was a really nice collaborative atmosphere at the university. And it's particularly in that first year because we were all in halls, which was a really, you know, that, that's one of the benefits of going to a music college is getting to, or a music uni is, is getting to meet all of those people and collaborate with those people. Um, but yeah, then we started to build that up. And from there, it, it sort of has grown on from being a thing in the room. Uh, I, I stepped away from doing the music and then we started having more producers coming in from external places and more professional producers. And we've sort of grown it from there. Okay. So what was it like when you first got another person involved? So you got another producer involved. Like, it, I don't know if you can mention who that person was, but it's like, you're like, maybe, oh, I've got too many people right now. Or I just, I'm not interested in doing the production side of things. So how did you find that first producer? What was the process like? So the first producer that we had was someone who was at the uni. And it was someone who was in the, the flat next to mine in the halls. And he was a brilliant multi-instrumentalist, far, far better musician than me. Uh, you know, brilliant guitar mm. player, brilliant pianist, and had a really good mind for songs and, and song structure and arrangements. Um, and so he started working on some stuff. And, and we started really, at this point, we were still just trying to work out is this viable? Has this got legs? And what what can we do? Because I knew that he'd be able to focus really well on the music side of things. I didn't really need to manage or, or intervene on the musical side of things. The bit that I really wanted to focus on was the customer experience and the the sort of, the, well, the customer service and then, yeah, the experience that the customer would have. Because I felt like that really is the thing that would set us apart from any other producer or any other person who's just like randomly reaching out to you is creating something that can be an experience for you. And so I think the first, you know, the first guy that we had on was absolutely, you know, vital to developing what uh, and learning what the customer would want. Um, at this stage, it wasn't really a company. It was just a couple of us 
doing this stuff. It, you know, there was there was no sort of formal thing. We were going under the name My First Single at that time because we were just targeting beginner musicians. And then <laughs> very quickly, I had to explain to a couple of people that hearing the name My First Single, that there wasn't actually like a dating element to it. Yeah, I was about to say, it sounds exactly like a dating website or a dating app. It's like My First Single, because if you're not a musician, you don't think of singles as the way we do. Exactly. And, and so I was like, right, we need to change the name. And then I just thought, well, we'll call it the online recording studio. Does what it says on the tin. Um, you know, I think businesses that sort of tell you what they do, if they are a bit niche, I think works, it works well because it, it takes some of the explanation out of the process and it's kind of intriguing. But yeah, having that first person on, it, it was a really, really useful thing. And, you know, I'm very grateful to that person for, for the work that they did when they were with us. And it, it laid the groundwork for, for building and developing to having more producers on. They were kind of patient zero, as, as it were, yeah. in, in terms of building up. I think the big challenge was making the transition from being hey we're mates and we're students and we're having a good time to like to our money's changing hands and all that kind of stuff exactly to it becoming a business and it being something where you know especially with music as well you start to look at things like rights and there's there's a lot of paperwork and complexity that goes into something it's not just a thing of hey i made this i'll send it to you it's yours now so learning about all of that sort of stuff was was really key and then i suppose as things changed and as things developed, our expectations and our needs for the producers also changed and developed and, and the, the responsibility grew for the producers. And so then when we were bringing other people on, we had to make sure that we were kind of um, indoctrinating them with that way of this is just as much about the experience for the artist and them having a great time and feeling really cared for and feeling like you're you're interested and you showing that you're interested and not just Hey, can you add a beat to this? Yeah, cool, done. Because because it, it's it's the, at the end of the day, there's two sides. There's your side and the customer side, and the producer might feel like they're ch- jumping between the two. But it's like, no, you're on the business side. You have to be, you know, in in any regard, a representation of my of my business. You have to be a great employee type thing. Mm. So you went from producing into what I would call kind of like artist management or creative development what other roles did you kind of jump about in until you ended up where you're at now do you mean like within the business or just generally yeah within the business yeah within the business so within the business in all honesty every role that we have now I had to do at one point and learn how it would work and then realize what my limitations were in that and then bring people in to who were more specialized or had better experience in those areas so I think the, the first role was content creation because that even even today we still get a large portion of our customer base through instagram Uh, and you know for the first couple of years it was only through instagram because our website was this crappy thing that we built on wix that was so ugly and like it was just terrible it was just a mess to navigate so it's just like dm us we'll, we'll do it we'll do it from the dms type thing genuinely that was it and because of the fact that i didn't have the sort of skills or, or the time or the money to, to get a really good website put together we kind of just based on those limitations of needing to be on instagram for it we just stuck with instagram and, and still have a very instagram focused sales process and pipeline but developing all that content was the first thing and that was a real challenge because again it was it was sort of about how can we make stuff and living within our means because we don't have budget to film and create loads of amazing content um yeah 
what can we do to kind of cut some corners without cutting quality? Uh, and so what we did, what we started to do very quickly was basically put the content responsibility onto our community. And knowing that people wanted to get shout outs on Instagram, people wanted to get, um, you know, wanted to promote themselves. If we asked our artists, hey, can you do a video of us, uh, of you singing the song? For us, that's then two pieces of content. It's the initial video where we're showing them and showing them off what they can do. But then it's also a, bef- a before and after once the, once the process is finished. That's what got me on the website. Yeah, you had the audio tracks there of, you know, this is a demo track, very, you know, lo-fi, whatever quality, someone with a track playing in the background singing into their phone. Next thing you know, it sounds like a a, a club floor banger. I was like, what the hell? I was like, so this happens all in this website in a space of like a couple of weeks. I was like, cool. Well, thank you. And, and I think it's it's been really interesting to see that we have you know come up with all these different ideas that we think are amazing for, for marketing. We think there's... We think we've come up with this like genius formula and time and time again, it always just comes back to that really, really simple before and after it. That's it. That's what it comes back to it. And actually the, the idea for doing those before and afters came from uh, like weight loss programs where you see the person with holding the big pair of trousers out, you know, <laughs> yeah. and I don't know why they're still wearing that pair of trousers. They should buy new trousers if they're that thin, but <laughs> they've been too busy losing weight. They haven't, they didn't notice last week they were, you know, 150 <laughs> odd pounds. Now they're, you know they just mean? dropped it overnight. And then they're like, Hey, you never guess what I did. But it, genuinely that was it. I remember thinking about those and I was thinking like, how can we just, what, what people want to see is transformation. Yeah. And, and that's true for any product. That's true for any sales process. They want to know what's going to be different for them or for their life if they get the thing that you're trying to, to provide them with. And yeah. if you boil that down to its simplest form, it is those before and afters. And so we, we've, you know, those are still a, a sort of uh, a, a centerpiece of our content strategy is those before and afters. So there was that position first. Then I guess sort of writing and kind of sort of creating stuff for our blog but again our blog is something that we still are working to try and develop and, and get better it's those supplementary bits of content and i i think the most challenging part of it and still something that is challenging is actually the people management side of things it, it's dealing with a team and so i think that that's been the, the consistently the, the big challenge as we've grown and developed um but anything that's music related, I usually defer to, we've got two great exec producers on the team now uh, called Danny Blackburn, who's a great producer based out in Leeds, and Dave Gerhart, who's a great producer based out of Philadelphia. Um, and so they really focus on the musical side of things and running their production teams. Um, so yeah, I mean, every, everyone that we have in the company, essentially, I had to do at one point or another with varying levels of success. And then we got someone in who would be much better than me at doing it. And, what, and what's your role now? Are you like CEO or what's the what's the title you're giving yourself? I mean, I guess fat founder, CEO. I never really know quite what to say. I suppose, I suppose CEO, I'm also the, the salesman for the business. So oh, okay. when I meet people, yeah. I'm the first person, when, when artists come to us, I'm the first person that people meet and I talk to them about what they want for their projects. We just decide on the broadly the direction for the song and I'll get some feedback from the other guys. And then I act as a kind of conduit for those ideas with the artist and then we get them sorted and booked in. And so, yeah, sort of sales as well, but CEO, founder, I guess. 
<laughs> you seem so so uh what's the called laissez faire nonchalant about you like ah ceo founder that's a good title because some people call themselves a ceo and they only have like one employee you said you've got 20 employees that's ceo level stuff man like give yourself some credit <laughs> yeah you sound like my uh my girlfriend yeah <laughs> uh, yeah you know you're gonna you're obviously gonna have a girlfriend when you got CEO. <laughs> that's, that's the given <laughs> um to be to be honest i think when i was first starting things out we joined various uh like startup incubators and accelerator programs and things like that in leeds right. and i met quite a lot of people who talked a lot about being ceo and that's kind of where their yeah. ceo dom started and ended was in that chat of just like yeah i'm a ceo run a company blah 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 and i think i've always been really conscious of not wanting to come across as someone who's like hey yeah i do this because i think as soon as you get too sort of pleased with hearing yourself talk about yourself and talk about your stuff you get really comfy and you stop trying because you've managed to convince yourself that you're absolutely killing it all the time and it, that is the biggest stopper on proactivity and, and creativity i think is when you're too contented in how things are going and so yeah i'm always a little bit i, I i'm always a little bit sort of squeamish about going like yeah actually i, I run the thing but um yeah I'll, I'll i'll work on it yeah i mean hopefully you know in the future you'll you'll say it and you won't be the guy that's just saying it because it feels good you're saying it because that is just genuinely what it is and it's it's a nothing thought to you but what is what is one of the kind of I always like to ask the question, what's something that went wrong with online recording studio? Like what, what was something that happened that was like, oh shit, everything's gone bad. Like, you know what I mean, the servers have crashed or something like that. I'm trying to think of like, what's been the, the big one. There've been loads of little things that have happened or like medium <laughs> things that have happened, but what's been a big one? I think something, I wouldn't say there's kind of one defining event for this thing, but actually what's been a really, a really key problem and something that we've had to look at a lot over the last year or two has been because of the fact that we do everything remotely, because it's all done online and we're not in the room with the artist, keeping people engaged over a long period of time has actually proven to be more difficult than we first anticipated. Because my, you know, maybe you're like me on this, but if you've spent a few thousand pounds on something, chances are when you get emailed by those people or, or when there are things to be done on developing that project you would respond and you would get back in and you wouldn't yeah. sort of have a couple of weeks and then you'd be like oh you know sorry i was just doing something else and blah 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 and it becoming something that it's like a chore that you you know we, we, that's been a real surprise for us where people have come in and they've spent you know five ten thousand pounds on an album and they get a few tracks in and it's not that they're unhappy with the process because we make sure everyone's really happy and i always check in and, and everyone's always very positive about how things have gone it's that they are maybe it's just musicians but people can be a bit flaky and so that's been a real challenge is trying to keep people consistently moving through because it works best for the producer and the artist because they make the best music if there's not big gaps and stuff. It works best for the artist because they're not just, you know, treading water on the same project over and over and over again for, for months and months. Yeah. And it helps us because it means that we can continue to provide our producers with new projects that are coming in because we can only give them a certain number before they have to have finished a certain number. Uh, and that's been a really big challenge has been trying to keep people engaged. So it, not everyone, I'd say it's about 20% of people come and then are really difficult to communicate with. And, and you know, it's really challenging. And that trying to, to sort that out has been a, a big challenge for us. I suppose the other thing that comes to mind is, again, sort of on the organization side of things, is having a team of producers who some are pretty much close to full time. 
others who are doing really well on, on projects outside of tours and are whether they're doing live sound or they're producing other people or they work in their own studios or something like that, being able to have a team that is able to give different amounts of time Mm. to creative projects that also have a little bit of a, I'm not quite sure how long this is exactly going to take. Yeah. That structural management of all of the projects is a, a tricky thing. We had a, we have a great, a great guy on our team who's one of our electronic producers called Marcus, who for a long time was our head of operations. And he brought in this great system where we were using Trello to track all of our projects. And we had sort of various automations on things on there that would mean that, you know, the draft has to be due in this amount of time. So then they get a deadline and we'd all get a notification. And those, that sort of system was really useful in, in solving that problem. But it's still a work in progress as to making yeah. that work the best it can. I just recently started setting up Zapier, which is, you know, that thing where you have one thing happen and another thing will happen on, on automation. But I feel like, I don't know if you're someone like me, but I never think of these weird organizational tools as useful. I'm always like, oh no, I've got it written in my in my notes on my phone and I've got a Google doc somewhere, da, 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 da. but the people that can like bring everything together and streamline it, I feel like those are the people who can really help businesses go forward because they make it easier for you to do your job they make everyone else's jobs easier to do. And it's a lot more kind of transparency with what's going on type thing. You're right. It, that I think if you're, if you're naturally inclined to being a creative person, and I would say I lean more on the creative side than the sort of analytical side, having someone in your team who is organizationally focused and you know really gets off on streamlining and efficiency and, and all that kind of thing, that is really useful. And I think the, the next big step for us as a company is bringing someone on who can kind of act as a, a COO, CFO position, who can, be, who can be in charge of organizing and streamlining various things that we do, both from a financial standpoint, but also from an organizational standpoint. Because one of the big weaknesses that I know I have as a, a leader of the company is that I, prior to doing this, didn't have experience working in a corporate situation or in an organization. You know, I worked in, I did a bit of hospitality. I did a bit of sort of music related stuff, but had no experience sort of being able to look at someone who was a manager and say, right, okay, how does it, this, this is, is how, how you, you organize all of this stuff. And this is how you manage and how you deal with all the people and how you organize all your, your workflows yeah. and all that sort of stuff. So that's been really difficult. And I still feel like we would really benefit from having someone who maybe doesn't even have a musical background. I must admit, it's it's difficult when you're working in the capacity you are in a. It's it's basically the product is a creative product, but the back end has to be really really tight in the business end, and it's like the the crossover between the two is is great, but realistically both have to be just as strong as each other, or else the whole thing falls apart. Mm. Type thing, and and that kind of goes back to when I was first working with that first new producer. It, it, it's a prerequisite of being able to join our team that you are a really good producer and that you're fairly versatile as well because we can't guarantee what genres of projects are going to come in so you if you want work you kind of need to be able to do a few but because of that that meant that we focused much more on the organizational side of the projects and the customer service the customer journey side of it and I'm glad that we did that early on rather than having to come to that later because I think that you know if you're working within a, a, a recording studio you should just get a song that sounds really good. That is a given. Mm. But the the organizational side of things, which then feeds into how the customer service works and how efficient that is, that's the bit that I think a lot of creative organizations don't really focus on 
And that really yeah. makes the difference between someone having like a decent experience where they get a good song and having an awesome experience where they say, this is one of the coolest things I've ever done in my life. Um, and that's, that's sort of what we're working towards is making sure that people aren't just going like, yeah, the tunes sound good, but they're going, this is one of the coolest things I've ever done. Or, you know, we have, we have a lot of older people who maybe wrote some songs back in the day and want to record now. And lockdown was a kind of perfect excuse for them to do that. But the number of people who kind of reached out and said, thank you for finally allowing me to kind of realize this dream that I've had. That's the motivator for us, I think, more for me personally, more so than just like, hey, that song sounds really good. So it's one of those things where as, as well, I feel like a lot of people that say, oh, I want to do music. You know, that's normally a personal choice that you make by yourself or whatever time, whenever. They always go, oh, where do I find this? And where do I find that? And it's like, for me, I was like, when I wanted to work in music, I just went to where music was being played or went to where music was being made and just and just tried to talk to people. But everybody's not like that. And I feel like as well, with your kind of business, it helps those kind of more, oh, what's the word, introverted people to be able to get their music out. Because it's it's not a fact of, you know, they're not talented or they're not good. It's just they might not be able to go up and talk to people and, and get that kind of thing done. Whereas with you, they can go online and be like, right, this is what I've got. You talk to them and be like, okay, we're going to try this, try that. Then they can have a nice end product. And, you know, nowadays, I don't, I, this sounds mad to say to people, but I don't really think people actually have to tour anymore so much. I know it used to be a big income stream, but it's like, you can do merch, you can do this, you can do that. Streaming, if you get a decent amount of numbers can be all right. And yeah, you might have to have a little part-time job, but I feel like there's definitely more room for introverted artists to be out there now. Oh, a hundred percent. And I think that, Actually, when you look at some of the major artists today and the ones who've kind of come up for it, you know, I think Billie Eilish is a really good example of, of someone who obviously exploded. Now, yeah. she wasn't quite the overnight success that everyone thought she was. I mean, she was releasing music like five years ago that was on SoundCloud. But she's someone who didn't really tour beforehand a huge amount. It was all online. It was using SoundCloud, I think, that she first built up that big audience. She had, uh, I think the track was called Ocean Eyes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and, and she she grew that that online presence and then started touring once there was an audience for it. And I think that particularly with electronic musicians, unless you're an electronic act that plays a lot of your electronic stuff live with, with synths or, you know, with, with a launch pad or anything like that, touring can be somewhat underwhelming for your audience because it's just like... You just come out and just press play and then Exactly it. that. It's like, it's not that, and you know, it's entertaining if someone's really good, but actually hearing a backing track, if, you, if you've been to a night where you've seen a bunch of live bands and then someone comes on and it's just them with a microphone, it does, it's not as exciting. And actually, I suppose based on the genre that you're doing, whether or not touring is useful, I think if you're a band, touring is absolutely a thing you need to do. 100%. Um, not just from the perspective of, of building an audience, but also you need to get the experience of playing together when there's people around. That, that will inform which songs you decide to, to include on the record, which songs you decide to cut or just play live because, you know, you know that people respond well to them. But as income streams go, I mean, streaming is going to make you no money, but the artists in our community that I've seen make the, the best money from doing stuff have focused really on two things. They've focused on building a really loyal community of their own so having really good activity on social media, having um, 
clear engagement channels with the people who follow them. So whether that's just in the comments on the post or whether they've got an email list or, but that it's not just a thing of having an email list and sending a newsletter out every month. It's interacting with these people genuinely. Absolutely. There's, there's no point in having all that stuff unless you're going to on a weekly or even a daily basis, maintain it and work on it and develop it. Cause otherwise yeah. it's like, Oh, I got a newsletter from that artist I followed a year ago who gives a shit exactly people's attention is at a premium and you have to make sure that you reward them for agreeing to give you a, a part of their attention so it's it's first off building a, a community but second of all it's it's sync placements publishing and, and sync placements yeah. that particularly over this last year where touring hasn't even been an option that's where we've seen our artists be able to be successful with because some of those payouts if you get something featured on like a netflix or a, a, a hulu show or a, a Prime Video or any of those. It's five figures, six figure deals. Absolutely. I mean, for you know, even for really small ones where it's like 20, 20 seconds of your song is featured in the background or like someone's listening to it or something like that. It's it's four figures at the very least. And for most artists... That's the most money they'll ever see from that song, if, if yeah. we're being honest. Because sometimes I'm watching television. I'm like, oh, what's that song? Get the Shazam on. You go look at the song. It's only got like 5,000 streams. You're like, what the hell is this? And you realize a lot of people now, I was doing that for a while, making songs just for sync, but all my songs went to corporate stuff. So it's nowhere to be found online like that. You look and you go, right. So this is a full-blown great track. No one's really heard of it, but it's just in the background of this show. You get the first intro bit. Do you know what I mean? There's, there's so many different ways for people to kind of get their music heard by loads of people like indirectly, mm. which is, I, I think it's all about what we talk about at the beginning. You have to be realistic with what it is you want. Do you want people to hear your music and love it? Or do you want to just perform in a stadium? Because one can't happen without the other, but at the same time, if you want people to hear your music and love it, that doesn't always translate to the, the arena or the stadium talk. No, it's true. And, and actually finding, finding a way to connect with your audience in a way that means that they're going to care long-term is a really difficult thing to do. And particularly if if you're just going by what you've seen other people do on social media, that can be really tricky. And I think that the rise of TikTok means that not a lot of people are thinking about starting the trend. They're thinking about following the trend. Most definitely. In, a, in the grand scheme of things is not teaching people to be the mavericks that the music industry needs in order to have these big names and these people who really kind of push the envelope. You know, you wouldn't, you wouldn't get like a, a Bowie or a, you know, or, or, or a, you know, or someone even someone more more current, like Florence and the Machine, or someone like that. Yeah, there would be no Adele's nowadays. There's no there's no room for that type of creativity anymore. It's just about following trends and all that kind of stuff. But to the TikTok point, there's this artist now called Pink Pantheress, and she only makes songs on TikTok. Well, she releases them now, but like the songs are like a minute, two minutes long, and they ev they um, evoke nostalgia. So she'll sample. You know, I can't remember. She sampled like Just Jack Stars in her eyes, looped oh, yeah. it up and added a new drum beat and sang over it her own song. And it's like the second I heard it, I was like, ah, oh, I know this song. No, I don't. I don't know this song at all. But what she's done is she's got, you know, Gen Z on her side and she's kind of hooking in our generation with this kind of new wave nostalgia stuff. And it's, it's like that's something new where she's making music just for TikTok but it's worked out into a music career. And I don't feel like she was ever going to be like, oh, I'm taking music seriously until it blew up from TikTok. But a lot of people now aren't viewing it that way. They're like, oh, this is the formula. I need to make my song, put it on TikTok. And da, 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 da. It's like, there's, in music, there's a lot more room for happy accidents than there are manufactured success, especially on an indie level. That's a really interesting point. I think with someone like that, 
she is she is a princess what she called yeah pink pink pantheress i think is pink pantheress okay so that is a really good niche that she's found i'm actually not familiar with with her or or her music that's really clever you know that's that's a really clever thing that that she's done then in, in order to be able to whether intentionally but in order to engage a younger audience and an older audience who remember those songs when they first came out and that's a really good example of someone being a leader and, and thinking of a thing that they can do because I, I you know you can bet bet your bottom dollar that actually there will be so many people now who are doing exactly that because they've seen her success and doing stuff and I think that's that's the problem is that and, and that's always been true for music to some degree because everyone's always wanted to sound like you know first everyone wanted to sound like the Beatles and then people wanted to sound like the Stones and then you know moving forward that's how the trends work and stuff but it's so much more rapid now that a trend can come and go in two weeks Whereas before it would take a decade for that trend to go. You know, if if someone said to you, okay, so what does the music of the 60s sound like? There's a sound that comes to mind for that. Someone says, what what did the 80s sound like? Again, there's a sound that comes to mind. Someone says, what did the 2010s sound like? There'll be songs that come to mind. Yeah, there's no set sound. Maybe you could say the 808 started to become more popular around then, but that's about it really. 808 and... um triplet hi-hats <laughs> yeah triplet yeah rap, rap that's it. yeah rappers going yeah that was a big yeah. thing that yeah fair enough there's no kind of set like you could play this song and it would describe the last 10 11 years of music because it's just not working no. like that at all and and actually that's only going to get faster and faster with tiktok because you know it's no stopping tiktok you know we can't sit around and go hey you know let's try and rebel against that tiktok thing that train has left the station and it's for us now to try and work out how we capitalize on that platform and use that platform in order to grow whatever it is that we're doing. But I, th- I think that just to come back onto the, the point about sort of touring and, 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 and monetizing and, and people using TikTok for that, I think actually if, if you can have a really good dialogue with your audience and you can have a conversation that is reciprocated and you're giving that, everyone always talks about this value first proposition and i think there is truth to that but really you just have to make it worth someone's while to entertain you and think brutally honestly why would anyone care what i have to say or do right now and if you can't think of a good reason then don't post anything until you've worked out a good reason and then build your entire content strategy around that one reason for us that's we can help music we offer advice and tips and we show people what can be done for a you know a clothing brand they show people hey this is how cool you could look if you buy our clothes Uh, and people want that transformation coming back to that thing of transformation if your thing is hey this is what my meal looks like today don't you care no one really is because you're not doing anything new you're just following the trend of like hey this is you know i've seen other people do this and i think that that it's really important for anyone creative or anyone trying to build a, a business or a brand online to first and foremost understand why anyone give, would give a shit about the content that you're putting out before even beginning to think about how you start to monetize that content. That that early monetization is such a mistake that people make. I think a lot of people look at what's making money and try to copy that. And that is probably the worst way forward. If you do something that's genuine and unique to yourself, then you can figure out the rest later. Like there's, you know, the, the prime example I like to give people is YouTube. A lot of people start out daily vlogging. They do that for one, two years, you know. So you know, let's say they do 50 videos or let's say weekly videos, 50. They've done a hundred videos, haven't made any money. Then all of a sudden they hit that, that tipping point where they finally start making money. And I feel like with music, the road is way longer because you've got to spend time getting decent. Then you've got to spend time getting good. 
Then you've got to spend time building that audience because no one wants to hear, unfortunately, no one wants to hear you when you're eight years old singing. If you don't sound too good, you can't write a song for shit. Yeah, it's cute, but it's not going to sell. So you're going to end up being like, you know, in your late teens, maybe with enough skill or maybe starting to get enough confidence. And it, it's one of those things where it's like, nowadays the, the environment we live in is social mm. media dominated. Like it has to be done online type thing. Are people really willing to put in the the extra, because it's sec technically a second part-time job is building your career. I don't know if many people are going to bother to do that. And, and then they get frustrated. Oh, the music scene wants to keep me out. It's not that it wants to keep you out. You just haven't put in the time and effort to build up your brand. Cause that's what it is in today. It's a personal brand. What I would say to people who are trying to build anything online uh, or on social media is first of all, social media in the world doesn't really owe you anything. You, what it owes you is nothing. And if you manage to get more than nothing out of it, then you've beaten the system because those things aren't built for you to grow. They're not built for you to promote your stuff. Really, they're built for you to log on and then not log off for as long as possible. That's their primary function is to keep you on there as long as possible. And if one way to do that is by drip feeding you growth and success so that you make it part of your daily routine and you're on it all the time, the, the value of Instagram and the value of Facebook exists purely based on how much they can sell ad space for. So their priority is just keeping you on there. And so... I think people who go on to Insta, just using Instagram as, as the main example, but going on to Instagram and thinking that you're going to immediately, without spending any money, without having a really coherent, consistent strategy that has you know clear brand identity, you've got brand rules in place, you've got color schemes and fonts and styles that have already been set out so that you can create a really cohesive uh, experience for someone. Unless you have all of that stuff, it's not going to happen very quickly and even then it's still not going to happen very quickly it takes years to grow stuff it really does even if you're on it every single day i coach various artists who are in our community and one of the things that i'm always talking to them about is about having to do the graft of the manual outreach on instagram having to spend ages each day you know 30 to 50 people not just following them so that they follow you back, but following them, going and engaging with them in a real way, liking and commenting on some of their stuff, showing that you're a real person who's actually engaged with stuff. Unless you have 10 grand a month to spend on social media ads, that is the only way that you're really going to grow your audience. Unless you get really lucky and get featured on a big channel or you, you know, get shout out from someone and then things start to snowball. Really, unless you're making really shareable content, you're going to have to do that manual outreach. But in the long run, that does pay dividends because then you've got a personal or semi-personal relationship with hundreds, if not thousands of people who, when you post something and say, Hey, what are you thinking about this issue today? Then you've got an army of people who will come back. There's a, a one, one of the artists in our community, a great singer songwriter who's in London actually called Abby Mia. She is someone who started working with us about a year ago. And we worked on the first, I think about half dozen tracks with her, but, she has been incredibly good at building her social media platform. I think she's at Abby Mia on Instagram, if anyone wants to go and check it out. She's got some great music on there, but she's got a really consistent style. She's really proactive with engaging with the audience, building the audience, creating new little challenges for people and sharing stuff. And she's seen massive growth. I think she went from a few hundred followers when she first started to like five or 6,000 followers over the course. And these are all real people, no bots, no fake yeah, no bots, no no bullshit. Because that's that's the thing that ends up happening is some people buy a chunk of followers to get them to that, you know, 
10K mark of followers. Then they'll try filling the blanks. And then when you look, you go, all right, 10K followers. Why has this picture only got eight likes, nine likes, 50 likes? Like, And then they've got the one big post, which has got all the thousands. It's like, okay, so that's when you bought the followers or that's the post you promoted. And I feel like I'd much rather have a thousand really engaged people follow me than 10,000 people and only 100 people really care about what I'm doing. And like you said with Abby, she's built her following up and built it up. And I, I feel like it's one of those things where she's actually starting to probably see the benefits of it that now more than her reaching out to people, people are reaching out to her. She'll post something straight away and people will share it, which might bring one, two, three people in, but one's better than zero is what I always tell people. People go, oh, my plays aren't where I want it to be. I was like, how many plays has it got? Oh, well, sorry, that number's not zero. It's better than nothing because there's so many people out there that put music out and whatever and, and get, you know, I would, I would just say less than zero plays, but that's not possible. But you know what I mean? Like they'll go and tell their mum and their friends and then 15 plays and that's it. And then there goes their, their dreams. The thing to do is to picture all of those people in one room. If you only have, if you only have 200 likes on your post, imagine 200 people being in, in the room with you and all of them going, hey, I like that that kind of adds value to it a little bit more. And I think trying to, trying to compare yourself to one a massive artist who's had millions and millions of dollars spent on their marketing campaign and going, oh, I don't have as many likes. I should have 5 million on here. It's just not going to happen for yeah. years. It just isn't. And, you know, it'd be dishonest to say it, w it would. Um, but one thing that a lot of artists, and, and not just artists, but creatives and businesses, I think, small businesses don't fully capitalize on is PR. We're so focused on social media and boosting our likes, which likes aren't even that important. Comments are really what you should be focusing on. But we're so focused on that stuff that no one is thinking about the fact that still the majority of people get their news and they get their information from blogs, from newspapers, not maybe the physical version, but even if you're on Twitter, you're being shared articles that weren't made on Twitter. They were made outside. So if you can start to get yourself featured in different blogs, different publications, that's only going to help drive traffic through to your social platforms. And if you're a musician, it's also going to drive traffic to, to the streaming sites. And the more traffic that goes through those streaming sites and your profiles, the more it starts to learn about who your listener is, what they also listen to, what they don't listen to, what they like. It's tracking everyone's behavior on there the whole time. And the more people who go through your thing, the quicker it can then learn, okay, so the person who likes your music also is a big fan of Coldplay and also is a big fan of, um, I don't know, uh, Radiohead. You know, it's, it's sort of alternative rock, well, broadly speaking, with, with radio, uh, with uh, with uh, Coldplay these days. Yeah. yeah. We'll let you go with that one. Yeah. <laughs> Guitars yeah. and, and people singing. Let's put it in that genre. In that yeah. yeah, fair enough. It will start to recommend your music to people who have those tracks saved or are listening to them you know, in Discover Weekly and, and those sorts of things. So if you can have someone, and this is something that we do with artists that we've put much more of a focus on away from social ads to, to PR, because we've seen that the response that you can get from, if you have a compelling story, a compelling reason why people should care about you and the music, that these things can just catch fire. And you can get featured, we, we've had a couple of artists where now it's the first three or four pages of Google, every single thing that you search for is, or if you search their name, it's all articles that have been picked up off the back of a single press release that's been sent out. So that's a really good hack for people trying to grow a brand is use PR, utilize your PR. We've got a brilliant woman in our team called Jenna, who's just like a total whiz with PR. And she's taught me loads of stuff about how that works. And 
that is a real game changer for people, I think, that is often overlooked until you get to a much higher level of whatever it is that you're doing. And it's one of those things as well. A lot of journalists are always really searching for a story. And if you've got an interesting story to, you know, say you were homeless last week and now you're busking in the street, they'll, they might pick that up. Who knows? You know what I mean? Like, just give it a chance. It's definitely something that I've learned recently. And f through this podcast, fine enough, I spoke to someone who runs a PR agency. And she was like, why do you not do this? And I was like, I don't know. What's the point? She's like, there is a point. People have really built audiences and they want, they literally want to show people like yourself to their audience that's what they survive off i was like wow i didn't know any of that it's it really it's an eye-opener once you find out about it and i'm i you know me too i was very late to, to the party of knowing how important it was and i it was mo it was shown to me most clearly when we we had an artist who came to us called colt sterk who is a black hawk pilot in the u.s military and a, and a singer-songwriter Oh, nice. They go together, obviously. That makes classic, the most sense. Fly a that plane. That old chestnut of, of, <laughs> of, of yeah. Uh, yeah, being a, a fighter pilot and a, a singer-songwriter. But because of that crazy juxtaposition, we put together this press release that I think the, the title was literally like Black Hawk Pilot by Day, Singer-Songwriter by Night. We sent that out and it just got so much traction, particularly in the States because, you know, they love their military over there. And so it really... Did, did really well America, America. Yeah. every time <laughs> they they were really into it but he you know he got interviews off that he got podcast uh or sorry playlists features and all of that came off of again a single press release because the story was compelling enough so I think for anyone who's who has a brand or is a, is a musician or or has anything that they're trying to grow think about what makes your story compelling and get someone to draw up a press release and send it out. Ideally, someone who has the contacts to be able to send stuff out to rather than just doing it cold and use that channel because it is so easy to do, really. I, you know, there's, I'm sure, you know, it's a whole industry, so there's complexity around it. But at that entry level, you can get picked up on stuff that will massively, if there's a blog that has 100,000 people who read it and you get featured on there, that's 100,000 potential streams or potential new followers for you. That's huge if you've got, 5,000 followers on Instagram and suddenly you're exposed to 100,000 people. I think people shouldn't shouldn't miss that opportunity to do that because it will save you so much money rather than spending money on ads and having endless ads that are running and you need to optimise and blah, 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 you know, all that sort of stuff. Just send out as many press releases as you can. Where can the people find you, your business and all that kind of good stuff online? You can find us primarily at onlinerecordingstudio.com and that's where you'll find some examples of our work and you'll find the website but as I've mentioned on this podcast we really are an Instagram first agency and so if you follow us at the online recording studio on Instagram and um, we're also going to be launching in the next few weeks our own podcast which is called Make It In The Music Biz and we're going to have different guest speakers we're going to have different seminars and, and uh, episodes focusing on different aspects of growing your audience of making better music of monetizing your music and essentially building a career within the music industry so that'll be available on all of the streaming sites by the end of september but in the meantime give us a shout on instagram we'd love to hear from you thank you for listening to people explained new episodes come out every monday we would appreciate it if you gave us a review on apple podcasts and shared this episode with a friend 